invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, where we will be in Luke chapter 1 and 2 for the next uh, four weeks through the end of the year. If you're using one of the Bibles under a chair in front of you, you can find Luke on page 803. Uh, I, I invite you, and I hope that you will, make your way to Luke in your copy of God's Word because I've made a decision not to put the text on the screens this morning. I want us in the Word, right? Uh, it's important for our eyes, I think, to fall on our own copy of God's Word. It is such a privilege and blessing to have access to God's Word the way that we do. Uh, let's not take that for granted. So find Luke in your gospel or in your Bible this morning. Luke is in the New Testament. It's the third of the gospels that we have in order. Matthew, Mark, then Luke. And so it's probably, you know, about 72% of the way through uh, my Bible. I don't know where it is exactly in yours, but more or less the same place probably. This Christmas season, we enter into a sermon series that I have titled simply, Humble, Glorious Christmas. Uh, Those two words next to each other, humble and glorious, seem kind of paradoxical. How can those two be next to each other? Often when we think about humble things, we don't think about them being particularly glorious or or awe-inspiring. And often when we think of glorious things, we don't necessarily always picture humble things, at least not initially, but my guess is all of us have something in our our lives, in our minds that that we hold as both uh, humble and glorious, or we glory in something that is really rather humble and understated. For some of you, it may be that, that first cup of coffee in the morning. It's not much, it ain't special, but man, if it doesn't help you get going. For others, it may be things in nature that we observe that are humble and glorious. I myself have, have at times, it's kind of weird, but found myself just in awe at honeybees and bumblebees and the way that they work together. I mean, there's, there's billions of them, probably more than that, in the world doing thankless work, uh, at least from all of us. And, and it's humble work. A lot of it goes unseen. And yet they, they make honey. They pollinate our plants. Uh, uh, there, there are whole aspects of our, uh, just our, our natural ecosystem that are dependent upon the work that honeybees do. They are humble and understated. And yet when we look at what they do, it's, it's glorious. For others, it might be, I don't know, something, other, uh, something else that's simple and, and, yet, and yet draws you to worship. And this is, and oftentimes when we think about Christmas and the incarnation of Christ, we go maybe immediately to the glorious, well, God coming down in flesh to live among us, full of grace and truth. Glory is of the only glory of the Father, as John would write, in his gospel, being the, the perfect revelation of God, as the author of Hebrews would say. Or maybe we go the other way, to the very, very humble nature of what Christmas is. Jesus, the Son of God, being born as a baby, and not uh, to, a, not to a, a family in high position, but to a lowly family, and not even in a hotel, but, uh, or much less a hospital, but in a, in a manger, in, in kind of a, a stable where animals were kept. Jesus who grew up uh, learning math and language and how to speak and to say his ABCs, all of God in this child submitting to the, the, the kind of human experience, if you will. We, we go often, I think, one, one way or the other, either to the glorious aspect of Christmas or the humble aspect of Christmas. And yet I want to say it's both, that Christmas is both humble and glorious, as God does unexpected things in bringing his Messiah to the world that, that many would have overlooked because it was too humble for them. But those who take time to look into the 
the humble beginnings of Christmas, we see all of the wonderful glory of God in it. And so today we're going to begin in this series in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 38, at God's implausible, impossible plans that come together in humble ways that show all of his glory. In this first in these first several verses of Luke, Luke chapter 1, 5 through 38, Luke the gospel writer records how God brought his Messiah, how he sent Jesus his son, and his herald, John the Baptist, how he sent them into the world against all odds and through two very humble, unassuming couples to demonstrate his own ability to do the impossible through improbable, improbable people for his glory. The main idea of Luke chapter 1 and the main idea of the sermon this morning from Luke 1, 5 through 38 is this, that God accomplishes his plans in ways that confront and confound us, but always accomplish his purpose. God does what he intends to do in ways that confront us and confound us. They rub up against us and they confuse us sometimes, but they always accomplish his purpose. This morning, as we see how God works his improbable and impossible plans to bring both the herald of the Messiah and the Messiah into the world, I would hope that we would come to trust in the goodness and power of God this morning as we see it on display in this text, and so also find ourselves walking in loving obedience to his plans for us. So let's stand together as we honor God by reading his word, Luke chapter 1. I'll begin with verses 5 through 7. Luke, the gospel writer and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. You may be seated. Continue following along in your copy of God's Word, verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, 
Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. These two scenes of angelic visitation as Luke presents them here as he begins his gospel are almost identical in their overall structure. Now the characters are different. Their responses to this angelic visitation are also different. But the flow of the passage is almost identical in both places. There's the introduction of an improbable or an impossible couple. There's the appearance of the angel Gabriel with news of an impending pregnancy, including specifically the name of the child and what his life's mission will be, what his job description will look like. Then there's a questioning response to the news by the surprised recipient. And then Gabriel addresses the question with authority from heaven given to him by God. Now, the way that Luke structures the telling of the events is intentional. He tells us these two, he gives us these two events in the life of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus, and he structures them them this way on purpose. And it's the differences in the story that we come in which we come to see something about how God's plans both confront our disbelief and confound our preconceived notions of the world, and they even evoke interesting responses. God's plans being accomplished against all odds also reveals something about the character and the nature of God in all of this, that he is able to do, as Gabriel said, the impossible. Chapter 1, verse 37, I think encapsulates so much of what we see in these first several verses. Nothing will be impossible with God. So we've said that God accomplishes his plans in ways that confront and confound us, but always accomplishes purpose. Let's look first and see how God's plans confront our disbelief. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, the angelic visitation of Gabriel to Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth are an interesting couple for a lot of reasons. They're both from the priestly lineage of Levi, Elizabeth herself specifically being from the line of Aaron, the first high priest among the people of Israel, the brother of Moses. We're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth exhibit the kind of love for God and love for God's word and faith in the Lord that inspires a life of godliness that others cannot deny. They are blameless, walking in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. Humble, worshipful is their godliness that they live out before others. It's not at all like the self-serving, self-righteousness of some of the other Jewish 
leaders of the day. These are a humble couple who love the Lord and love following him. And like Abraham and Sarah and Samson's parents and Samuel's mother Hannah, all in the Old Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth have no children and they are advanced in years. I don't know how old Zechariah and Elizabeth were, but surely old enough that they had, they had kind of given up the likelihood that they would ever have children as a couple. Through the progress, uh, uh, here they, they, So they're older, they have no children, and they've never been able to have children. And through the progression over the years of relatives asking why they don't have children, to whispering behind their backs about the selfishness of Zech and Lizzie not to have children, can you believe them? to the dismissive comments and questioning looks that finally settle in around them at every family gathering. Through all of that frustrated waiting and not having children, Zechariah and Elizabeth remained faithful to God. They kept praying for a child. They never felt the need to defend themselves to others about their childlessness because they knew that God knew. And they seemed to have trusted His plan even not to bless them with children. This deep longing of their hearts, not yet met by God, has not in their lives led to bitterness or frustration or asking God, why? What's your problem? What's wrong with us? No, they just keep loving the Lord and following him faithfully. It's in this state of life that Zechariah, in his day as one of 18,000 priests, gets the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to exercise his priesthood by going into the temple in Jerusalem. Not into the Holy of Holies, but the room inside the temple just outside that. And to offer incense, to burn incense before God, and to pray for God's blessing and, and God's care for his people. He, uh, among 18,000 priests, you would just, someone would draw you by lot. There were 24 divisions of priests in that day, and everyone would get a turn, if they could get a turn, on one day of the week to go in and offer incense. And finally, Zechariah's lot gets drawn. It's his opportunity to go into the temple. And on this once-in-a-lifetime task... While he's in the temple doing his duty, Zechariah is met with the favorable presence of Gabriel. Gabriel is said to be standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. It's a, a picture of God's favor toward Zechariah. The same angel that appeared to Daniel, the prophet of Israel in exile in Babylon 600 years before. And Gabriel brings Zechariah the best news of Zechariah's life. Zech and Lizzie are going to have a baby. A boy, no less. And Gabriel says his name is to be John and he's going to be a prophet like Elijah. More than that, he's going to be filled with the Spirit of God. Not for a moment or for a season like so many other prophets and kings and others had been, but he's going to be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. He's going to fulfill the word of the prophets from Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 to be a herald, a crier, a living signpost and billboard to the Lord's Messiah, the anointed and chosen deliverer. And John is going to be a source of joy and gladness to Zechariah and Elizabeth, of course, but also a source of joy and gladness to everyone who will hear his message that the Messiah is coming. Now, all of that is the setup for the punch of this section. Given all this glorious news from Gabriel to Zechariah, Zechariah asks Gabriel for a sign to confirm all that is going to take place. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Now he doesn't, his words recorded do not say, give me a sign that I'll know, but he's effectively saying, how will I know, Gabriel? What sign will you give me as a guarantee? Because as you understand, Gabe, we're old and we've been trying. We got no kids. 
God's plan for this humble, godly couple initiates a crisis of faith in Zechariah. It's not that Zechariah is doubting God necessarily, but he is in literal disbelief that an old barren couple like them can have children. I see this, this, their situation as somewhat ironic because here you have this older godly couple who is godly because they love God's word. And if they love God's word, they know what God has done in the past. They know Abraham and Sarah. They know about Samson's parents. They know about Samuel's mom. They know about these barren women in the Old Testament who were given children in improbable and otherwise impossible situations. And yet Zechariah is going, I need some collateral on this, on this guarantee. So he wants a sign. Zechariah, God love him, for all his faith in God and all of his faithfulness to God, knows that God can do the improbable. But he doesn't believe, despite all of his praying to the contrary, that God will actually do the improbable for him. We're told, Gabriel says to Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayer. God has heard Zechariah and and Elizabeth praying for a child for years and years and years. And it seems that even as they are praying for a child, they have also sort of consigned themselves to a lifetime of childlessness. And so now they get this news that God's going to give them a son. And Zechariah's like, yeah, but really? Now, if I were Gabriel, I might be inclined to respond because I'm snarky and salty. Yeah, Zechariah, here's your sign. In a few weeks, your wife's going to wake up puking several mornings in a row. She's going to start craving Passover lamb shank when it's only the feast of first fruits. And she's going to start getting progressively rounder in her midsection. How's that for a sign, Zechariah? Instead, Zechariah gets the silent treatment, literally. He's made literally speechless for his audacity to question God's ability to give him a child when it seemed improbable. Now, really, it's a mild discomfort. It's an inconvenience to Zechariah to not be able to speak for the next several months. But can you imagine being Zechariah and wanting to shout and sob for joy the first time you felt little Johnny's foot pressed back against your hand from inside your precious wife's belly only for nothing to come out of your mouth? Every moment of silence for the next many months is for Zechariah a reminder that he didn't believe this was possible. And that God did it anyway. Now understand the desire by many who are in positions like Zechariah and Elizabeth, wanting children, not able to have them. To want to make the promise of God to Zechariah and Elizabeth a promise for their own lives. If we just pray harder, honey, God will cause us to get pregnant. If I just just keep living for God, eventually he'll bless me and he'll give me children, won't he? Friends, this passage, as wonderful as it is, and and, and as miraculous as it is, is not a promise for every barren couple. We need to remember that. This passage is descriptive of what God did once. It's not prescriptive of what God does all the time. But this passage is a revelation of God's ability to do the unexpected in ways that confront our disbelief. Here's a better connection, I think. The people of Israel, in Zechariah's day, had been waiting for their Messiah, had been waiting for the promise of his coming for centuries through a divided kingdom, through time in exile, through return from exile. The people of Israel for hundreds of years had had these promises from God that there was hope for a deliverer. And yet, over those hundreds of years, there was no fruit of that promise yet. They prayed for it. They longed for it. 
They hung on to the promise of God to do it, but at the same time, after centuries of waiting, some of them had begun to believe that maybe God wouldn't do it after all. So when John actually comes and grows into a man and begins his ministry, preparing the people of God for Jesus' arrival, he's met with a mixed audience. This baby that is conceived in Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter 1, as he begins his ministry, calling people to repentance, he is not well received by everyone. Now, some hear his message and they believe. They hear the message that the Messiah is coming, so they need to repent and get ready for his arrival, and they do. But many others don't. Many others, when they hear John, the Pharisees in particular, they mock him and they oppose him and they oppose those who listen to him. Why? Because his message is confronting their lack of faith that God has sent his Messiah and that the Messiah is on his way to deal with the unfaithful and to give life to the humble who seek him. Often our disbelief that God will do something that we know he can do hinders our prayers and even hinders our faithfulness to God in that time of waiting seemed to be kind of the case among the people of Israel. Over those many hundreds of years of waiting for and even praying for the Messiah to come, they had lost some faith, began to disbelieve that maybe God's promises were actually for them. But this is not the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Even in the face of, of all the doubt and disbelief and long time of praying and everything, they keep staying faithful to God. They keep praying for God to do whatever He will, even if it's not what they want, And they're never deterred from following him. So the better lesson for us, knowing that God often confronts our disbelief, the better lesson for us from Zechariah and Elizabeth is that we would not allow God's waiting or God's not answering of the deepest prayers of our hearts to be the thing that hinders our praying or hinders our faithfulness. Instead, friend, if you're waiting for God to do something improbable or impossible, maybe a lot like Zechariah and Elizabeth, maybe something else in your life, The call, the the lesson from Zechariah and Elizabeth is this. Keep praying. Keep praying for God to intervene in impossible situations. Keep worshiping Him for what He has already given you and keep following after Him with total abandon and love for Him. Why? Because He's totally lovable. This faithfulness, faithfulness to God, even through difficulty and frustration and not having your heart's deepest desire, even if it's a good thing like a child, Faithfulness to God in the spite of not having from Him what only He can give, friend, that will not guarantee that God will give you the thing that you seek or that He'll do the thing that you're praying for. He still may not. And even if He doesn't, He is still undeniably good and He is still undeniably deserving of glory and honor and the service of your life, even when His plans aren't your plans. God often confronts our disbelief by doing the improbable thing that we've been waiting for him to do for a really long time in in ways that maybe we've even forgotten that or thought that he's not even capable of doing anymore. He does it for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he demonstrates his glory in this wonderful situation. But we see also, as the scene shifts from Zechariah and Elizabeth now to Mary and Joseph, though mostly Mary here, we see that God's plans not just confronting our disbelief, but also confounding our expectation. Sometimes what God does is totally confusing to the way that we see the world. It totally upends all that we know and understand about how the world works. In verse 25, the scene shifts. It's six months after Gabriel had visited Zechariah and were introduced to a new couple, another improbable couple. Not Zechariah and Elizabeth, old married couple without kids, but a young, yet unmarried, but engaged couple, Mary and Joseph. 
Joseph may have been about 20 years old or so, maybe a little bit older. Mary likely was only in her early or mid-teens, 13 to 15 years old. And so were Zechariah and Elizabeth were from a priestly family. Zechariah was a priest. His wife was from the line of Aaron. Joseph is from a royal line. We're told that he's from the line of David, the line from whom the Messiah was supposed to come, the line from whom the, the Messiah had to come in order to have a rightful claim to the throne of God's people. So on one day, in the middle of maybe many days of wedding planning and anticipation of being a bride and a wife and maybe a mother, Mary, like Zechariah, gets a visit from the same angel. And Gabriel brings her essentially the same news that he brought to Zechariah, only it's a little bit different. Mary's going to have a son too, but not just any son. He's the son that Israel has been waiting for. The Redeemer himself, his name will be Jesus, which means something like the Lord is salvation. He will be God's own son, Gabriel says, and he will be the eternal king that God promised to King David over a thousand years before would come from among his descendants to reign forever. Mary gets news from this angel that the baby she's about to conceive is the one, and it is God's plan for Mary to be his mother. Now, the setup here for the punch of this scene is a whole lot shorter than it is for Zechariah. Mary understands the situation. She hears what Gabriel says. She knows how babies are conceived. And she is certain of her commitment to chastity before marriage as a part of God's design for that relationship. And so Gabriel's news doesn't bring a crisis of faith for Mary, but it does bring genuine confusion. At the news that she's going to bear a son, conceive a son, she says, how, Gabriel? Like, like literally, how? <laughs> you, you understand how these things work, don't you? I do. I'm not an angel. Surely you understand how babies are made. I know that God is not going to call me to do something that he's forbidden for me to do before Joseph and I are married. God's not going to call me to become ungodly in pursuit of his purposes. So Gabriel, what are we doing? How is this going to happen? And all at once, Mary's whole understanding of, of reproductive biology and her expectation for how her life might have progressed are totally upended, totally overturned by God's plan to make her the mother of the Messiah. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes for a minute. Some of you girls are 13 to 15 years old here this morning. If an angel of the Lord came to deliver that news to you, what would you think? You'd probably handle yourselves a whole lot better than I would because men, we just freak out at everything like this. But still, how, what? How? So Gabriel puts her concerns for the impropriety of it all. Mary knows people are going to be talking about her behind her back. Mary knows all the flack that she and Joseph are going to take if she becomes pregnant before they're married. Gabriel puts all of her concerns for all of that to rest. He says, Mary... God is doing something unique here, something he's never, ever done before and will never do again. Something miraculous and explainable, but totally real. He's going to create life within you by the power of his own spirit. And by the way, he's even made it so that your cousin, Elizabeth, could become pregnant. Dear Mary, nothing will be impossible for God. How, Gabriel? Nothing will be impossible for God, not even causing a virgin to conceive. 
Now this morning I know that there are many who question the virgin conception of Jesus. They say, that's just not how that works. And that's precisely the point. God is doing something unprecedented and unrepeated in human history here. It's biologically impossible, we might say, and Mary might have said, and God's response to that claim that having a child, not the normal way, God's response to that is, you're right, it is impossible, but I'm God, so watch this. In the same way that Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy is not a promise for couples who can't conceive, but a demonstration of God's ability to do the improbable, Mary's pregnancy is not a promise that God will do the impossible thing, whatever you want to spiritualize that to be in your life, the impossible thing that you are hoping for. But it is a promise, it's a revelation that God did the impossible thing to bring His Son, your Savior, into the world. These twin scenes of unlikely boys born to unlikely parents are not here in God's Word to give us hope that God will do impossible and improbable things in our lives today. That's not the purpose that they serve for Luke or for his audience. These stories are here instead to encourage us to place our hope in God who has done the impossible already to bring us back to Him, to rescue us from sin, to redeem us for Himself. God did the improbable and the impossible to save you from your sin this way. The promise of a son who is the Savior is not new in Luke chapter 1. It's as old as the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 3. The promise of a king who is better than David who would rule forever is not new to Mary. It's as old as 2 Samuel chapter 7. And these two events, John's conception, Jesus' conception, with these two unlikely couples, old and barren Zechariah and Elizabeth, young, not even married yet, Mary and Joseph, are just the next step in God's implausible and impossible plan to save people from their sins. The Son of God must be truly divine and truly human. He must be conceived this way for him to be a fitting and sufficient substitute for the human sinners that he'll die for. The virgin conception is a theological necessity for Christ to be an appropriate substitute for us. And not even an appropriate substitute, a a better substitute. This is why Jesus was born of a woman and not dropped down onto earth out of heaven. It's why he suffered as we do, yet without sin, so that he could be a perfect mediator between us and God, who who could perfectly represent God to us and us to God, because he is truly divine and truly human. So Luke 1 is not calling us to trust God to do impossible things, but simply to trust God and his plan to deliver you from sin through his Son, miraculously conceived, sinless in his life, who died in your place, who rose from the dead, who is reigning with God now and is coming back again. Luke chapter 1 says, believe this God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph serve as wonderful examples of the kind of people that we ought to be in relation to God. Humble, unassuming, faithful to God, trusting his word, trusting that he is good, believing in his power to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We see in Luke chapter 1 the way that God loves to do glorious things through humble and unlikely people because it makes it all the more obvious that God's the one behind it all. How else do we explain what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth? 
How else do we explain what happened with Mary and Joseph and Jesus? And how do all of these humble people being used by God respond? With more faith, with greater joy in God, and with more humility and an even increased willingness to do all that he commands. Elizabeth hides herself away for a number of months when she becomes pregnant. We're not exactly sure why, but she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Her response to this wonderful and probable thing happening in her life is worship of God who did what no one expected. When Mary hears this news from Gabriel and is told all that will happen and how it will happen, she responds with even greater loving obedience to God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Greater obedience, greater trust in God, greater joy in what he is doing and willingness to do all that he commands. God accomplishes his plans in stunning ways. According to his purposes, he calls us to trust his goodness and his power as he does these things. And as we observe him doing these things in history, he has fulfilled his plan to redeem us from sin, to rescue us from our own rebellion against him through the humbling of his own son to be born as a child and to suffer and to die as a friend and servant to sinners. Friend, you may struggle with disbelief. You may find your expectations exploded at the claims of this God. But I tell you, he is eminently trustworthy and eminently perfectly able to accomplish his glorious purpose for your life, which is not always to do the impossible thing that you hope he will, but his purpose for your life is to restore your relationship to him. He is able to overcome the horrible, horrendous, deadly power of your sin and rebellion against him. And he overcomes it not by asking you to work harder, Not by asking you to be better. Not by asking you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because he knows that that is spiritually impossible. God does for you what you cannot do for yourself by sending Jesus, his son, to be born a human, to grow and experience all that humanity is and to die as a substitute for your sins. He's gloriously raised from the dead three days later, ascends to the right hand of God where he invites all who are aware that they are a sinner in need of a Savior to trust Him for salvation, to turn from sin, to trust in in the thing that only, in the person that only God could bring into the world to be our Savior. Give your life to Him as Lord. The question is, can you humble yourself to trust Him? Can you humble yourself to trust Him? The question for us, Christian, day to day, even as we wait for God to do things that our hearts deeply long for, and he seems to hold off on giving us those things, can we still humble ourselves to trust him? Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, unassuming, unlikely couples, totally devoted to trusting God and serving him, despite what they've seen in the past, and despite the fact that they have no idea how he's going to do what's coming down the road. There are wonderful examples to us of faith, humble faith, that exemplifies the glory of God at Christmas. Let us too humble ourselves to trust the Lord regardless of circumstances, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, starting with salvation. And then, of course, to trust him to give us all that we need each and every day of our lives as he gives according to his good wisdom. It's a humble, glorious Christmas. And we'll get to see more of the way God demonstrating his glory in unassuming, unanticipated, humble ways as we continue through Luke. But today, let us humble ourselves to trust this good, 
glorious, powerful God. Let's pray together.